Are you looking for expert analysis and the latest news in the promotional products industry? You must be, because you're listening to the Promo Marketing Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Promo Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Norris, Editor-in-Chief of Promo Marketing, joined, as always, by Brendan Menapace, Senior Digital Editor. Brendan, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sean. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Personally, I'm still riding the high of your uh, your story on uh, Elvis merchandise going yeah. on, on Reddit yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at our site traffic last night and the bar graph was like literally off the charts. Um, how does it feel to be Reddit famous again? Dude, it feels good. You know, it's funny now, just as a kind of casual Reddit user, when I saw that spike, I was like, I bet I know where this is. So I went to the Today I Learned subreddit. I kind of expected to have to scroll down a little bit. It's right on top. So, right there, man. You made thank, it. You thank, you, made it. thank you, Reddit. Today I Learned. Keep, uh, keep on sharing our stuff. You're gonna. I, I think you're gonna have to do a, an AMA at some point. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I'm the writer of the Elvis merchandise story. Yeah. Um, our guest today is uh, David Palaszczuk. He's the author of the book Branding Bud: uh, The Commercialization of Cannabis. David is an expert on the legal cannabis industry, uh, which is this really intriguing, fast-growing vertical market for promo. So we wanted to ask him about what cannabis companies are doing from a promotional marketing standpoint, how they're using packaging, some of the legal and ethical questions involved in marketing and advertising cannabis cannabis products, sorry, and especially what uh, distributors should know about working with these companies. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Before we get there, there's one thing I, I need to get into with you. Rush Order Tees, uh, the t-shirt printing company. Uh, based around here, actually, they're right outside of Philly, and I, I visited their their facility at one point a while back. Um, but they did this survey where they asked 1,000 owners of band T-shirts about their purchasing habits and general thoughts on music merch. Um, and at the top of the, the the report on the results, they listed these three key takeaways. So I'm going to read these in order, um, and we can just you know we can parse these out a little bit. So number one, the top top key takeaway: punk fans have spent the most money on their band T collection. They said $597 was the, the average that, that checks out. That seems that to be about right. <laughs> Despite you know, being punks and, and, you know, being famous for uh, not having any money and, and, you know, grinding it out in the, in the, uh, the alleys, they, they had the most money to, to uh, furnish a nice band T collection. Uh, and then number two, heavy metal fans have the largest band T collection with 17 shirts in their wardrobe on average. That also checks out. Also checks out. Uh, you can't read the writing on any of the logos, but they're, they've got all the, the T-shirts. Um, and then number three, this, this is where it gets interesting. Music fans think you should know at least 10 songs from a band before wearing a band's T-shirt. How, how do we feel about that? I don't agree. I think if you like a band, like, you know, you know ask me this 15 years ago and I might have felt differently when I was awful when you but, were a punk yeah you, you know me but um i think you know if you like something you like something who cares i think personally that you should be able to name all of the songs in the band's discography yeah uh, all, all their b-sides and obscure demos yeah, including the japanese b-sides yeah all the the overseas unreleased stuff in the in the u.s um their current former members, any session musicians who played on all their recordings, mm -hmm. uh, the one drummer they had for the tour in uh, in between their their co-headlining tour. I mean, this is ridiculous. I think like like you said, let people like stuff. 
Like I don't, uh, th- this gatekeeping is insane to me. Yeah. Like, and again, I, I probably would have been in that camp at some point, but I mean, I've owned band t-shirts without knowing 10 songs. Like I had a, yeah. I had a queen t-shirt at one point as one of my favorite band tees. I, at the time I could probably name more than 10 queen songs, but I don't know. Like I, yeah, I know yeah. 10 queen songs. I don't know if I know the names of 10 queen that, songs. If you ask me right now to name 10 songs by like one of my favorite bands, I would stutter just from being on the spot and it would maybe take me a second, you know? So. Yeah. There, there's only a few bands that I could confidently say that I, I could just rattle off 10 song names mm-hmm. for. I could probably get there from most of the bands I listen to, but Sure, I mean, but when you're put on the I, spot, I you're just like, uh, uh, uh. Right. <laughs> um, the other thing was that they go down, if you scroll down the survey, they have these band shirt rules. Um, and the top one, 43% of people said that you should buy a shirt before a concert to wear at the concert. How do you feel about that one? That one, I disagree with, just because that was something that's kind of beaten into my brain. Partially at going to punk band shows, like you don't you don't wear the band's shirt at the show. Right. I personally don't like doing that. If I see someone else doing it, I again don't care. Whatever you want, I don't I don't care what anyone wears. But well, the funny thing is, it it looks like the majority of survey respondents said they get their band t shirts from eBay. <laughs> so they're they're buying a t shirt for a band they're about to see on eBay, and then they're wearing it to the show. But that means they're not actually buying directly from the band so they're not yeah supporting I, the I band noticed, monetarily notice that too so you know who's the real villain here is it the person who doesn't know 10 songs but is supporting the band or is it the guy who has the encyclopedic knowledge but it's just yeah dropping 40 dollars that the band's never gonna see well this is so I'm, I'm looking at this chart where did you get slash where did you buy slash get your vintage band t-shirt ebay was 49 percent that led the way secondhand used clothing thrift store was second Depop was third. Grailed, I don't even know what Grailed is. That was fourth. Etsy, fifth. Passed down from family, friend, six, that was sixth. That's 16%. But like, none of these are direct from band. So what, what's going on here? I don't, I don't understand this. You know, it's all, it's all a mess. It's all, I guess it's all about the optics, man. That's, it is, that's it all is, that counts. That's all that counts. Like, why do you think, you know, you're, to your point about the, fonts for metal bands they have great merch so i get why like there's like i know there's a lot of outrage around this thing but i get why kylie jenner's wearing slayer shirts they're cool cool shirts it did i i think i saw this it it wasn't slayer like the the top top selling band t-shirt or something i that's gonna need a fact check but i i saw a headline about this recently um they have an iconic logo they have an iconic yeah. t-shirt design i mean you see a slayer shirt like you you know it's slayer even if you don't know what slayer is yeah and if you want to wear a metal shirt like that's the kind of the entry-level band for a lot of people uh let's see nope i'm not, I'm not finding anything here in the uh in a quick google search so we'll, we'll have to follow up on the fact check there about slayer status in the uh the band merch pantheon um yeah, that, that's all I wanted to get into. That that had me a little bit heated this morning. Moral of the story, just let people like what they like. If, if you like a t-shirt, like. 
if you see a band t-shirt and they're the opener and you've never heard them before go buy their t-shirt come on yeah. don't, don't you don't have to wait until they have 10 songs to go buy one like what if they have just an ep and they've you know the couple songs they play live give them <laughs> gas money to the next show but if you buy that shirt at the merch table at the show do not put it on there you got drip that is one yeah. <laughs> uh, drape it over your shoulder put it in your pocket do whatever you need to do I'm with you on that. I kind of do cringe at the people who clearly bought the shirt at the merch table that are at the show putting the shirt on. Like they put it on right, right over another T-shirt, and like yeah. number one, that's way too sweaty to be doing that. Exactly. <laughs> Just wait till you get home. Maybe we even watch. Support the, the artist that you like, but wait till you get home to put on the shirt. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one we can agree on. Yep. Uh, moving on, let's get to our interview with David on promotional advertising in the cannabis industry. It's some really good stuff in here, so make sure you give it the full the full listen. David, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, do you just want to give us a little bit of uh, background introduction on yourself, and especially about your book? Well, my background is a is a long and varied one. Um, I studied product and industrial design early on, so I take that love with me, um, you know, to where I am today, and especially in the cannabis industry. Um, I have twenty plus years in branding and marketing, um, working at American Express, Mastercard, Pepsi, and Microsoft. Um, I'm also a professional, or uh, was a professional skateboarder. So um, from early on, I just had an understanding of what lifestyle marketing uh, would become um, and how products would be associated with that. So, you know, whether it's, um, you know, my, my, um, my years as a product developer, my years as a skateboarder um, and my 20 plus years as a brand marketer. um, And then, and then, more, more importantly, and more closely to what we're talking about today, my 10 plus years in the cannabis space, um, it's been a long and windy road, but, um, y- you know, but there's a thread that keeps it all together. And that's sort of a curiosity as to, you know, why people uh, consume certain products, purchase certain products, choose to live certain lifestyles. And, and that really comes through in the book, which is Branding Bud, the commercialization of cannabis. And because of my um, understanding of branding and marketing and my, I guess my my life living around skateboarding and arts and design and, and various aspects of culture. Um, it just all came together and, uh, and put me in a place that allowed me to write this book. The audience Sorry, couldn't see it when you mentioned that you were a professional skateboarder, Brendan and, and I both instantly our faces lit up. So we'll probably have some questions for you off air about that. That's right in our wheelhouse. But, uh, but about the cannabis industry, I mean, cannabis is becoming such a huge part of, of our industry, the promotional products industry, you have dispensaries that are acting as kind of small business customers that are looking to market themselves and stand out. And then you have cannabis brands advertising their own products. So it's, it's sort of like, seems like it's this gold rush moment. Um, you know, for those who maybe haven't considered this as a legitimate business to work with or legitimate market, you know, how would you sell them on this market? Well, I guess first and foremost, I wouldn't sell them on the market. There's, there's no need to sell them on the market. There's so much activity going on that if they need to be sold, then, you know, they could stand on the outside and, and watch what's going on. Um, you know, the truth is, is that uh, in 2019, um, you know, the industry was an $18 billion business. It's expected to be a $74 billion business by 2027. Um, the taxes being generated, you know, are... Are phenomenal, uh, and and the truth is is that 
there are companies already jumping in, like perhaps Blue Ribbon, uh, like Constellation Brands, uh, large corporations, celebrities. Right now, there's over 53 celebrity brands uh, in the cannabis space. So um, I'm not here to sell anybody. Um, <laughs> you, you know, they could either um, jump in and, and join in um, or, or they can watch from the sidelines, but it's all good. It's happening. So how can, you know, advertising and the packaging itself work to break some of those stereotypes surrounding cannabis and maybe even appeal to some of those people who otherwise might not have ever considered purchasing it in the first place? Well, that's a great question. And, and let's just break that down. Um, there's packaging and there's advertising, right? So, um, you know, packaging in the cannabis, well, let's before we even get into packaging in the cannabis space, packaging in general, you know, really helps us understand what the product is. Um, is it in a uh, child resistant package? You know, uh, if so, who are we protecting? You, you know, um, kids mostly, but we're also telling ourselves like, hey, there's something in this package that we need to be mindful of, where it goes, where, where we put it, um, how we use it. And, and, you know, it's those things that are really important within packaging, right? So, you know, it, it brings us to a place and it talks about our safety. It lets us know about the dosing, perhaps even about the form factor, um, the implied use. Um, <clears throat> you know, if, if it's a transdermal patch we're talking about, then it's going to look like a Band-Aid. If it looks like a Band-Aid, then we all of a sudden start to think about how we're going to use it. If it's a cannabis beverage and it's put into a glass bottle with a crown top on it, uh, then we're thinking it's a one-time use, one-serving beverage. Um, and we think about it very differently. But within each and every package, there are these implied cues of, of how do we use this product and what should we expect when we open it up. So it's really important not only to develop packaging that's in line with our expectation and our, our um, you know, our unboxing <laughs> uh, expectation, so to speak, but, but also in line with what we as consumers are sort of like all about, you, you know, what, when we open something up, we expect a certain thing because we're so sophisticated at this point. So packaging really is everything. And that's outside of the industry. Now take that into the industry and then you've got all these rules and regulations about whether it's, um, again, child resistant packaging, bags, you know, that have to lock before you can, you know, walk in and out of uh, a dispensary with the product, those types of things. So there's many, many different things that, that come into um, packaging within the cannabis space. There's also serving sizes and, and overall bag limitations in terms of that. So those are really important. Um, you know, the, the, the advertising component, you, you know, while it's still really limited in the cannabis space, I mean, but granted, you could go to California and see billboards up on Sunset Boulevard. So it's limited, <clears throat> but within reason. Um, you know, that said, I think advertising is really important and mostly important because advertising takes a product and context contextualizes it, right? It, it puts it with people, places, and things um, and, and starts to really associate, um, or for that matter, 
not associate with certain communities. Um, and therefore the consumer starts to better understand what that product is, not only what it is, but the type of people that consume it, when they consume it, where they consume it. So advertising is really huge. Um, and now sort of where and how it lands in the cannabis space is really different from state to state, um, at least in the US. Um, you know, it just varies. Um, California has different rules than Colorado, than Washington, than Oregon. And I could, I could go through every state. Um, you, you know, there's, there's different rules, for example, for billboards on state roads versus interstate roads. Um, so there, there's lots of different things that are going on that still need to be, you know, ironed out relative to advertising and even packaging and even further dosing and a whole bunch of other things for that matter. But, um, but we're, we're doing our best, I suppose. And each state is trying to work it through. And at some point, um, you know, it will all come together uh, at the federal level. So obviously there are, you know, a lot of different products. There's a lot of different you know, types of companies working in this space, whether it's dispensaries or brands or, or, you know, whatever else. And there's obviously all kinds of different regulations that vary from state to state, like you just mentioned, but you know, do you have an example of what a good promotional strategy would look like for a cannabis brand of any kind, you know, especially from a, a marketing perspective, you know, what products are they using and kind of what's the desired effect and target audience? Wow. Um, that's a great question, but it's such a loaded question because the industry is so fragmented. So, um, you know, so look, let's, let's come back to promotional basics, right? Which is, you know, product price placement and promotion, you, you know, so, um, so there are many brands that do that well um, within their state. But as you start to talk about, you know, those brands that are trying to um, either MSOs, multi-state operators, or those brands that started as local state brands and now are moving out to other states, <clears throat> it's it's a it's a tough thing to do um, because you're really playing in 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 almost somewhat non-related markets, so to speak. Um, but but basically. Um, there are brands that are doing it. Um, you know, there are brands that do it well in California. Um, but California, I often look at as three separate states. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to manage. And, and even within those three separate states, I mean, there's different, different preferences. Um, so what might be the five favorite strains in San Diego are not necessarily the five favorite strains in, in Oakland, so to speak. Um, but it's, it's, it's tough. I, I think, you know, the, the, the bottom line, the basics are, you, you know, you start off with, you know, creating awareness, which drives to interest, you know, which then, you know, creates demand and then action. Um, I think, I think, you know, to, to talk about that in depth in the cannabis space is, is somewhat difficult because, um, there's many types of different, there's many types of consumers and there's many types of brands and, and those brands and the way they appeal to consumers, um, it, it is sometimes different than non-cannabis, uh, consumer product goods. So for example, um, some of the things that are succeeding right now in the cannabis industry are 
brands that relate to social equity. So for example, there's a brand called uh, The Farmer and the Felon. There's a brand called Evidence. There's a, another brand called Justice Joints. There's another brand called 40 Tons. Um, there's a few more brands that I could keep listing, but what they do is they give a portion of their proceeds back to, um, um, to different charitable organizations. And in this case, many of them are, are giving to uh, the Last Prisoner Project, um, um, you know, which deals with getting folks out of jail uh, that are there for nonviolent um, cannabis-related drug crimes, um, expungement, other things like that. Um, <clears throat> so there are cause brands. And, and you know, I, I talk about this in, in my book, which uh, one of the things that I, I sort of focus on are the 14 cannabis brand archetypes. Um, you know, and, and depending on what those brand archetypes are, that's how you appeal, um, you know, to a consumer. So um, you would appeal to a health and well, or a health and wellness brand would appeal to a consumer differently than perhaps um, somebody that that is buying evidence, um, you, you know, and happy that a portion of the proceeds are going to the Last Prisoner Project, um, or a luxury or designer brand, or a gender-based brand, or or a foodie brand. You know, people are looking for for different cues and, and different hooks and different language uh, and different looks and feels. So to get back to what is a good, um, you know, promotional strategy, um, it's really leveraging all the levers that are available to you in the state that your brand is in. Um, focusing on the things that you can control, um, getting traction where you can, um, and not focusing so much on the areas where you might build awareness, but you can't get traction. Let me give you a good example. There are many brands that have millions of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers, but those followers are not in the states where they sell the cannabis products. So at the end of the day, your 100,000 followers are great on Instagram, but if only 10,000 of them live in Oklahoma where they can buy your product, you know, that's great. But, you know, but what do you do with that? You only have 10,000 folks that live in the state you sell your product in. And maybe folks are coming in and out of the state and experience your product. But at the end of the day, what that would help you more with is, is your next step strategy, which is like, wow, we've got 100,000 followers. We see 10,000. We only sell our brand in Oklahoma. 10,000 of those 100,000 are in Oklahoma. That's awesome. We have 10% of our, our followers that we can actually sell to. But if 50,000 of the remaining 90,000 are in California, hmm, maybe that should be our next step because we have brand awareness there. Now we have to go build our product in that market and actually fulfill you know, the, the demand that, that we've generated there. So... Um, so, you know, when promoting cannabis within different states or, 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 or within multi-states, it's just really important to, um, to think locally, quite frankly. That, that's, that's the key to a good promotional strategy. In addition to that kind of local focus, um, what, you know, what kind of hoops do promotional products distributors need to jump through when they're working with either a dispensary or a cannabis brand that 
you know, for even something like a pen or any other related product, whether it relates to the cannabis product or not, uh, what, you know, what kind of hoops, whether it's legal or compliance, do they need to jump through that they wouldn't have to with like a, a bank or a school or something like that? Well, it's almost, it's almost everything. I mean, there's so many things and, you know, let's, let's just, I mean, I, I could start with the brand, but, but let me, I'll start with the brand and, and share with you what a brand needs to go through, but sort of how that almost uh, cascades out and telescopes out into a way that affects everybody, including, you know, the designer that's designing the brand, um, the printer that's printing the packaging, you know, all the other people that are sort of waiting for everything. So, um, you know, I have seen many brands get developed <clears throat> and they're great ideas. They're, they're great concepts. And then when you finally, you know, get everything within the rules and regulations of the state or multi-states that they're, they're selling in, you know, you start to really get hit with all these different things. And that includes everything from font size that includes, um, you, know, you know, color palettes that you can use. That, that includes not being able to use, I don't know, cartoon characters or some of the other things that, um, you know, that, that you would see on some of these types of products, even though the cannabis industry really has a history of really going over the edge, you know, what, whether it's, um, you know, what, what, whatever it is. It, it could be Skittles. It could be all the other things that, you know, take place in our industry, which, which really shouldn't be taking place. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think there's all these different things. So rules and regs are different by state, you know, state to state. Um, so that means there's child resistant packaging in some states. Uh, th there's uh, measuring and dosing, which vary from state to state. Um, you know, there's font sizes, color palettes, warnings, icons, um, and, and more importantly, when all this comes together, and since most people don't fully understand it, by the time it all comes together, and by the time it is approved by typically what is a liquor and cannabis board, and goes back through various iterations, um, you have all these people that, that are sort of lined up waiting. You've got the graphic designer that's doing all the work and all the varying iterations. You've got the, um, the printer that's sort of figuring out you know, what child resistant, you know, packaging they have. Um, and then you've got the brand at the end of the day that's saying, wow, these, not only are these rules and regulations different in each state, but they change really often. So everything's a moving target. So then the brands start to basically create or, or have a desire to print short runs because they know that these things are going to, you know, um, be basically out of, out of, uh, out of reg, you know, pretty shortly. So, um, so with that, you know, you've got more runs going through, smaller amounts of money running through. You've got designers jumping through more hoops than they normally would have and waiting through longer times. You have printers waiting, um, you, you know, for, for longer to get to press. And then in the end, doing shorter runs. This in turn sort of creates um, higher pricing for packaging and then higher pricing for packaging gets translated into a higher price for, uh, you know, a cannabis product. So, um, and typically, at least in Washington state, for every $1 that, that is in cost, by the time it gets to a consumer, it's three times that. So, um, you know, so if a package costs a buck fifty, by the time it gets to a consumer, 
it's 450. That's, that's a lot of money, you know, when you're selling um, a product. And when you start to compare what's going into it, <clears throat> you start to take a look at that. And, and when I say what's going into it, uh, THC, um, and you start to do some, some math around what you're paying per gram for THC, you know, all these things start to add up. So, um, so there's a lot that goes into packaging and the cost of packaging and, and the duration it takes to get all the approvals within the cannabis industry. And it really adds a lot to the, to the bottom line and to the cost of the co consumer. You mentioned that cannabis advertising is kind of this moving target in the U.S., but I know that you know Canada. I, I think has has more kind of federal level regulations with it. Um, do you think there's any danger in cannabis products going the route of say tobacco in the U.S., where they can't advertise in certain ways, or you know even like it is abroad where there's no branding at all on packaging? I mean, what, what's the what do you see as kind of the near future for for this market? Well, that's a great question, and that too needs to be unpacked, right? So, um, so if I think about the the you know where where this will go, um, I start to think about, and, and when I say where this will go, where will the cannabis industry go? <clears throat> and and as I start to think about all of the form factors, and I think about the discussions that take place with cultivators and flower consumers and maybe move that out a little bit into extracts and, and the folks that dab and, and waxes and shatters and butters and so on and so forth and, and resins and rosins. Um, to me, that's a different, um, that's actually a different community. So, so let me throw this back to you. And, and, and I sort of think it, think of it this way. I think of it as, industry versus ingredient. And, and so, um, so I think over time, the cannabis industry is going to basically be craft flower focused brands. And that flower extends again into the, the um, extracted components of the plant, as long as they're still recognized like terpenes and flavonoids and so on and so forth. Once you get beyond that and you get into distillates and isolates and water soluble and all these other components <clears throat> that go into edibles and beverages and sublingual slips and transdermal patches and, and all the other things that other, other form factors, then it becomes an ingredient. And so once it becomes an ingredient, I think that's when you're going to have Procter and Gamble and other types of companies over time come in and create, for example, a toothpaste that has CBD in it. Um, they don't consider themselves in the cannabis industry. They're just using a cannabinoid in their product. So to talk, so to come back to your question, sorry, to come back to your question and say, you know, will we fall into this rut? Like the cat, like like the tobacco industry fell into, or <clears throat> perhaps other industries. I really think it depends on how the cannabinoids fall into the varying form factors. So, if we're talking about flour, yes, there will be. I believe there will be rules and regulations that are similar to other smokables. If we're talking about beverages, I think cannabis beverages 
will fall more into the rules and regulations of alcohol, right? And I think when you start to move the cannabinoids into other things, whether it be toothpaste, like I just mentioned, or even um, uh, topicals or, um, or, or pills, you, you know, let's say in pill form, and it's being distributed by, manufactured and being distributed by a pharma company. I think, you know, it will be regulated like the current um, regulation that's, you know, that regulates those verticals, if you will. So I just don't think it's tobacco. I think it's, there's many types of industries and cannabis will run this, um, this horizontal sort of, you know, thread across all these verticals and cannabinoids will be in everything from flour all the way through to topicals, all, you know, which let's just say Johnson and Johnson makes a topical and now they put cannabinoids in it through toothpaste and all of a sudden, Again, um, you know, Procter & Gamble is making a toothpaste with CBD in it. But, but I think cannabinoids will run the gamut and will be regulated by the vertical that they sit in. I, you touched on something there that goes back to something that you mentioned up top too, which is that you know, there's all these different verticals and it, it is this kind of gold rush where there's, you know, the, this market seems like, there's limitless potential here. And that, you know, what was the figure you gave for the, in the billions that this was going to expand to 80, 84 billion or something by 2026. Yep. Uh, by 2074 billion. Yeah. So it's, it's huge there. So like you said, you know, it, this is happening and it's, it's up to people who, to, who do this kind of, you know, who market and who are in advertising promotional products in particular to, you know, get in while the, the getting's good, so to speak. Um, is there anything else that we haven't asked you about that you want to add here? I mean, we really appreciate all the, the really insightful um, information on the industry and some kind of, you know, uh, deep dive stuff on this. Cause I, I think this is something a lot of our audience is interested in. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to sort of <clears throat> jump back to the beginning, which is, um, which is really, you know, if you're going to create a brand um, and the packaging and the advertising to support it, you know, how do you create a meaningful brand? And, and what's, what are the components of creating a meaningful brand? And I think people most often miss this, you know, especially in the cannabis industry. Um, I often joke that many of the cannabis brands, um, you know, they started off as cultivator and farm brands. They've, they've moved and they've morphed and the, the landscape has evolved. But many of them are, <clears throat> as I said, I joke, dad, dad, joke brands you know it's it's sort of um you know they foster the stereotype that's existed for years um but that's changing and and i think the way to create a meaningful cannabis brand or any brand for that matter but in cannabis particular or to really start off with with four things and i create i've you know i, I created this equation if you will the first one starts off with um with the first component of the equation is really understanding who your consumer is if you know who your consumer is and and at the very least you know without digging into socioeconomic and and you know psychographic um, information um, at the very least if you understand their lifestyle that's huge you know who they are what 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 they believe in what what they live on a daily basis those things are really huge and if you could get a sense of who they are, 
you can move into the to the next sort of phase, which is, um, with, and, and when I say who they are, you know, just understanding a little bit more. Are they um, are they young? Are they old? Are they male? Are they female? Really, the basics. What kind of lifestyle do they do they lead? Are are they using um, a product or consuming cannabis for additive or subtractive uh, means? Meaning additive is something aspirational. It helps me focus. It helps me be creative. Subtractive is, um, it alleviates pain. You you know, it it takes something away. Um, You know, their lifestyle also comes into discreet or or, or not discreet or non-discreet use. Can they light something up and it can smoke like weed, smell like weed, or, you know, are they at home or in the office and they need to put a transdermal patch on their uh, wrist and, and, you know, consume, if you will, all day. Um, You know, those types of things are really important. So if you know who the consumer is and what their lifestyle is, and then you can move into really their need state and ritual, which is, do they consume in the evening? Do they consume in the morning? Do they consume all day? Depending on how they consume, which really leads into the next thing is form factor, right? So if they need to consume all day in microdose, if they just go home in the evening and smoke and roll a blunt, if they get up in the morning and smoke out of a bong, uh, or if they take tincture in the evening, there's so many different ways that you know they can consume. Um, the form factor will be key as well, right? So finally, if, and, and then the, the last, the fourth pillar or fourth metric in this equation is, is really the brand archetype, which is the outer layering. So, you know, if you can deliver a product that speaks their language, you know, whether, whether it's hermetically sealed and they know it's going to be safe, um, you, you know, whether it looks like a medical product, or whether it has the highest THC with really wild, colorful, you know, packaging, whatever it is, um, however you're speaking to these different um, consumers, you need that outer layer, which is really the brand archetype. So if you understand who the consumer is, how they consume, what their need state and ritual is, what form factor helps them get to that place, and finally wrap it up, in the in the in you know in the package in the bow that speaks their language and of course starting from the beginning that you had a quality product right that goes without saying you finally get to a meaningful cannabis product and most people don't think through all of those steps um they they really just have hey we've got some flour we've got this name let's put it together but i think if you just double click go a little bit deeper um, and, and really think about who the consumer is, what their need states are, and how you can really deliver that to them, uh, a product that solves what they're looking for, that's when you'll have a successful, meaningful brand, which will have a following and, uh, and, and you know, will, will really differentiate itself from what's out there. Last thing for you, David, for anybody who wants to check out your book, where can they find it? They could find it on amazon.com. And just one last anecdotal thing, the book has gone to the number one best-selling uh, book in logo and sorry branding and logo design as well as green business. Um, well, Congrats. that's awesome! Yeah, it's huge. Thank, thank you. I've worked really hard on that book, but the truth is, I don't think it went to number one because of my hard work. I think it's gone to number one because 
of the time. We, we live in a moment where, um, you know, uh, the administration has just changed. I don't know if that's for the better or the worse, but, but there are changes. Um, you know, New York, New Jersey, many of the East Coast states, um, you know, Massachusetts have, have uh, you know, move or are moving to legalize. I think we're, we're at the, you know, at the best place we could be um, for right now. We've got a long way to go, but, um, but things are changing and I think it's for the better. All right, David, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Brendan. That about does it for this episode. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on our website, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you need tips or comments, you can always send them to us on Twitter at promo underscore marketing. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, for Brendan Menapace, I'm Sean Norris, and this is the Promo Marketing Podcast.